Welcome to Empowering Women Through Sports. I am your host, Allison Ferguson. If overcoming adversity makes us stronger, Liz Clark is superhuman. Almost 15 years ago, Liz left Santa Barbara Harbor aboard Swell, her 40-foot sailboat, in search of remote surf breaks from Mexico through Central America, Galapagos, French Polynesia, and beyond. Every surfer's dream, right? Well, this transoceanic wave hunt in itself invites adversity. With the navigational, mechanical, and weather forecasting challenges, injuries, and illnesses, add to that the cross-cultural and gender barriers when entering foreign countries as a female solo sailing captain. In her book, Swell, A Sailing Surfer's Voyage of Awakening, she goes well beyond what we can cover in this episode. We talk about some of the challenges she encounters, some takeaways from her book, the inspiration for starting a few nonprofits, and her front seat view of the environmental crisis. I feel so fortunate to have reached her for this interview, and I'm excited to share our discussion with you. So hang on tight, listen and learn. Hello. Hi. (laughs) How are you? It's so nice to see your face. Exactly. I know. How are you? I'm good. Yeah. Well, where are you talking to me from right now? So I'm living in French Polynesia now. Basically, yeah, living in Tahiti and still have swell, but I needed a change, was ready for something different, was ready for a little bit more comfort after writing the book on the boat. Man, it was just so intense and such hard work. And I just kind of burnt myself out completely on boat life. And so, yeah, it was really shortly after I came back from the book tour that um, I've been saving up and hoping to, you know, have a little place on land eventually. And it just worked out that the timing was right. And um, I got some friends to help make it happen. And so, yeah, it's been a real blessing. And it's been a little bit tricky, too, because so much of my identity was wrapped up in being Captain Liz and doing this big boat trip. And so it's been a little bit of, you know, turbulent trying to find my new direction and um, be okay with, you know, not doing maybe this big spectacular thing that everybody's looking at me for and um, just kind of peeling it back and looking at what like you're doing right now, um, you know, looking at what I really want and what really makes me happy and coming down to those big questions that we should really be asking ourselves often in life, you know. Had you planned on writing the book at the outset of the trip? I know, definitely. I hadn't planned on much of anything at the outset. I mean, I, I was always into writing. I always loved journaling and sharing my experiences through the blogs that became a really fun outlet for me because spending so much of my time alone, I think it was really nice to have that way to share my experience with everyone. But the book, I was asked by Patagonia Books to write a book of like 20 short stories. And, um, you know, what I realized through trying to write 20 short stories was that I had learned so much and, um, you know, I'd gone through this incredible, like compressed growth, you know, in this short period of time, just, you know, had to grow and evolve and change and learn, uh, to be able to survive out there and continue doing what I really wanted to do. And so I just had like all of this 
what I consider wisdom or experience that I wanted to share with people. And so um, I kind of just started writing what I wanted to write. And the book kind of came out of that, out of just, you know, realizing that I had, I had learned so many things that could be really useful to other people. (laughs) This message in your book, what you write about is, it's exactly what we're all talking about in every sport. And it's just such a amazing story. So tell us a little bit how it all started. Like here you're sailing around the world and surfing, but where did the spark come from? Yeah, I think um, the idea definitely sprung from my childhood. I grew up spending a lot of time on sailboats with my family. And when I was nine, we, my parents took me, my brother and my sister out of school. And we sailed down through Mexico for one season, one year. And, you know, coming from a very small, wealthy town in Southern California, where I grew up, you know, this was just such an incredibly mind-opening experience for a nine-year-old. I was um, witnessing all the sea life and meeting all of these incredible people in these really small rural towns in Mexico and just opened my mind to a whole another world that was beyond um, Southern California horizon. And um, in my little nine-year-old mind, I formed this dream of wanting to, you know, protect the ocean and become a captain and, and see the world via sailboat. And after we returned from, from Mexico, we still did a lot of boating, but I lived a fairly normal life on land and went through junior high and high school in San Diego and uh, started learning how to surf when I was about 15 years old. And we lived in a place where I could walk to the beach. Um, I had been a competitive gymnast kind of up to my junior year in high school. And so at one point I was kind of like, I'd reached my competitive max as a gymnast and, and then had discovered surfing with a few girlfriends of mine. And it just combined all of these things that I really loved, you know, a physical athleticism and then my love for the ocean and nature and being outside. And so, uh, you know, I just like got into surfing and did not look back. I was just all about it. And all through college, you know, it really was such a grounding thing for me. You know, I definitely got into partying in high school. And, and by the time I was in college, like I wanted to surf. So Friday night, you know, I might party a little with my friends, but it really kept me grounded of wanting to get up Saturday morning and go catch some waves, you know, Santa Barbara, you see Santa Barbara. Yes, you see Santa Barbara. And so while I was in Santa Barbara, at one point, my dad let me live on his sailboat in the harbor there. And I kind of noticed it's such a unique place because you have access to these remote breaks, either up in the ranch area or out of the Channel Islands that you can kind of only get to by sailboat. And so all of a sudden in my mind, this big, I was still hanging on to this like sailing dream, but I realized that my my passion for surfing and this um, big dream I had of seeing the world by sailboat could kind of like combined into this ultimate surfing endless summer dream, you know? I mean, it's more complicated, but I I ended up meeting a retired professor who was also an environmental studies major and founder of the program at UC Santa Barbara. And he ended up helping me acquire Swell. He was looking for someone to kind of live vicariously through on their sailing adventure. He was in his 80s at the time and and we just formed this beautiful friendship and he became an incredible mentor, him and his wife as well, 
uh, both with ocean protection and philanthropy and also, you know, just empowering me to go out there and chase this big dream that I had. I love in the book, you do talk about that relationship and how it was built and founded. And it was really just a great tribute to Barry that his environmental studies, there probably weren't very many of those programs around in universities. And he started that one from zero. And now that's huge. Yeah. He was such a pioneer of his time. And it was, I think, fun for him to be able to mentor someone with a, you know, big, crazy dream and goal of protecting the world planet as well. You know, we had so many mutual points of interest and it was really a blessing to have met him. And, and I, I think I should give you a lot of credit too, Allison, because you were the first person that I connected with at Patagonia and, um, you were the one who I believe saw that article that came out in the Santa Barbara independent and, you know, talking about my little adventure. And, um, I remember Patagonia, you know, or you called me or someone got in touch with me. I believe it was you. I was me. I was fired up. Are you kidding? I read that thing. And I was like, wait, this gal is awesome. We need to talk to her. And, uh, I knew that, um, in my little division, I don't know how much I was going to be able to support, but that's, I'm so glad that Patagonia stepped in for you. Well, all of, I mean, women's surf basically grew out of your vision and I would not have been able to have done what I've done without the support of Patagonia. You know, it would have been a lot, lot harder. Um, and I would, and it would have looked a lot differently if I hadn't have had that support. And so, you know, thanks to your vision and thanks to your pushing for having a women's, you know, surf division, um, you know, I have been able to do so much of what I dreamed of doing. So thank you so much for that. Oh, wow. Well, thank you for that. The, the thanks is to you. I mean, one of the big things is it's not just a, an athlete that makes someone who is great for that brand, but it's the environmentalism and the efforts that you make toward bettering the planet. That's really first and foremost for, for Patagonia. And so that you surf and do this at the same time. I mean, it's just, it was just, it's perfect. Just, it was a really good fit. I was really lucky. And I'm glad that they're still involved. You guys are still working together, right? Yeah. Great. Yeah. I'm so lucky to still be able to be working with such an incredible, you know, they're always pushing the limit on trying to do what's right for the planet. And I'm, you know, trying to do the same on an individual level. And so, yeah, it's a fun, fun collaboration. So what, about almost 14 years that you've been out and about doing your thing? And um, So I left Santa Barbara in 2005. That's okay. And the, so then remind me, though, when, when did we meet? Was it before? Was it when you were still docked in Santa Barbara and doing all your work and trying to get it prepared to even go down to your first leg yes. in Mexico and all that? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, good. I believe it was probably early 2005 or 2004 that, that we met when I, that article would have come out and saying that I was leaving and then it, you know, kept dragging on. There were so many things to do and the checklist never ended, but eventually I did get off the dock. That's awesome. Well, <laughs> one of the things about that, you know, you're prepping for your trip and then even when you get on the water and you're going, 
there's more things. You haven't finished everything. And so you have to get all this stuff while you're going. And now you're heading into Mexico and Central America and all that. I mean, and this is pre-Amazon. Amazon was, you know, you couldn't simply totally. get on your satellite and order up some very specific sailing type of gear needed. You know, how, how did you get all this no. gear? Yeah. I mean, that was such an incredibly overwhelming time for me. And I think because I so wanted to succeed uh, at this big dream that I felt like having all of these items that would help me was so important. At one point I realized, you know, I had to just get out there and go with what I had and make do with what I had. And um, what I learned by the time I was out there was that you know, so much of what I thought was absolutely crucial to have with me was really not necessary. And that there was so many of the systems that we built into the boat. You know, Americans tend to want to have things that are packaged and they come ready-made. And and I, I had that mentality just from growing up in American society. Uh, but when I got out there, I just realized that simple was better. And I ended up simplifying a lot of the things that we'd made more complicated to start with. The more you know, the less you need. And that was absolutely right. And, you know, the more places I sailed, especially as I got more and more into remote regions, you know, I'm always just blown away by the resourcefulness of people. You know, we don't grow up with that kind of mentality in the U.S. We grow up thinking, oh, you know, I'll just go to the store and buy this thing that I need to fix that. Um, whereas when you get to places that don't have access to big stores and all the things you'd imagine you need, you know, they, they just find a way to do with what they have. And it just, it's so mind blowing to a person who has never approached problems that way. You know, um, I've definitely learned to be more resourceful and to make do with what I have. And I actually really get a kick out of being able to upcycle things and make things last and uh, make do with less. It's so resourceful. I mean, of all the things you learn on your trip, that's just so cool how you figure out on your own to jury rig something or tweak something and, you know, hey, it works. Yeah, you feel so, you feel so empowered when, when it does. I wanted to circle back and talk about surfing. In high school, you reached a level of gymnastics that would require a lot more gym time and elite coaching to get to a higher level. At the same time, you found surfing. How did your gymnastics and physical skills help you in surfing? I think gymnastics helped me enormously as I got into surfing. I already had such a close mind-body connection from gymnastics and had such awareness of using my body. And so the kind of physical athletic part of the surfing came to me pretty easily. Um, it was more learning the waves and how the currents and all of the weather aspects of the ocean affected surfing that was a little bit harder for me to grasp. But gymnastics made it so much easier for me to dive right into it and feel confident that I'd be able to, you know, figure it out. So you would be able to just pop up on the board so fast with that strength and that balance. From gymnastics. Yeah, I did have the, the foundation of strength and balance and some just basic coordination that gymnastics, you know, all those years of trying to learn new tricks and, you know, strengthening and 
all that conditioning definitely translated into being able to get up and maneuver and and be able to do the physical aspects of it fairly easily. I mean, I wouldn't say it was overnight, but um, I would say it gave me a big advantage. That's awesome. One of the big quests of your journey was sailing to find remote surf breaks, but approaching a surf spot from the ocean by boat is a lot different than from land. So for example, judging the size of the wave from the back is harder than from the beach where you can actually see, you know, where it's going to break and how it's going to peel. And the reef is shallow, but how shallow and where's the takeoff spot and where to line up and even where to anchor your boat so that if a rogue wave comes, it doesn't smash it. What are some things you look for when coming up to a new surf spot? Well, yeah, it was a whole huge learning curve when I first set out on Swell, um, trying to figure out how to find waves. And the sailboat always had to be first priority. You know, I had to make sure I had a safe anchorage and a protection from the weather, you know, bad weather for Swell to be safely at anchor before I could even think about going surfing, you know. So there was just so much that went into it. Blew my mind. You know, I had this fantasy of it being so easy to pull up and drop the anchor. And, but the reality was just so much different. And a lot of times I had to anchor the boat in a safe bay and then actually try to go overland to try to find a wave that I'd seen on the coast on the way down, but I couldn't anchor there because it was too exposed. So it was, it was a constant challenge trying to figure out, you know, read waves from the back and, figure out if it was worth putting the boat at risk to get out there and try to surf it. And But over time, I became a little bit better at reading charts and ocean floor topography and understanding like predominant swell directions and wind directions and just giving kind of having an idea of where to look. Um, when I started out, like Google Earth maybe just started or was barely existed yet. So there was not... And even GPSs were so much more rudimentary than they are now that I couldn't get too close to land in a lot of places where there was a possibility of there being, um, you know, navigational hazards that weren't on my little GPS chart plotter. So um, as the years went on, the Google Earth technology did, you know, help when I wanted to go explore an area. I could take some time beforehand and get to an internet cafe somewhere and try to, you know, zoom in. And depending on what day the photos were taken, you might have a little bit of an idea if there was a wave somewhere or not, or or just at least like scope out a good setup where you'd have an anchorage with access to swell exposed shoreline, you know, within a easy dinghy ride or whatever. So um, there was, yeah, a lot more that went into it than I imagined. And plus just having the boat in working condition, you know, surfing was my priority, but there was just so much that had to come first to stay safe and afloat. So yeah, it was always a challenge. And the cool thing about it is that it made me appreciate every surf session even more because so much went into uh, those moments of when you found yourself with all the elements coming together, you know? Oh my gosh. I, 
paralysis analysis, I think, you know, I'd be like, wait. (laughs) Yeah, too many options. Yeah, that's amazing. Does it get crowded out in the remote hinterlands where you are? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely places where there were more locals than I would have imagined that surf, but generally, sometimes that was really fun. A lot of times they were really welcoming and excited to see a new face. And I think I always did my best to approach any new surf spot really as a visitor and have good etiquette. And hopefully that helped my being welcomed. But yeah, there, I mean, it, it was so diverse, you know, even some places in Central America where, you know, you can find really crowded breaks. Uh, you know, we were, we were able to find spots that we had all to ourselves and that we couldn't believe, uh, you know, weren't more known by other people. And so it was a little bit of everything, you know, even in the Pacific, certain communities that are just have a ton of local surfers and it's really the thing there and other places where they were just amazed that I was there surfing waves, you know, so. I love talking to Liz from her perch in Tahiti. Can you hear the birds chirping in the background? As she's telling stories about where we surfed or we sailed, Liz is referring to when she was joined by friends or other sponsored female surfers and film crews during the journey. Liz is featured in the all-women's surf film Deer and Yonder and a documentary called Steer With Your Heart, a film from the Voyage of Swell. Both are found on YouTube. On the guy-girl ratio, I would assume there's a lot less girls in the water when the wave is heavier. Or I don't, I'm, maybe I'm speaking out of turn. Like, Yeah, no, definitely in the Pacific where you're mostly surfing reef breaks, I saw fewer women in the water than in Central America. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's getting more, I think there's more and more women these days everywhere, so that always makes me happy. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I didn't, I didn't mean to make it sound like obviously there was more guys than girls. I, I mean, it's just the way that it's been since I've been surfing, you know, usually totally. we are the minority and minority, if you're going to paddle yeah. out at Chopu. Yeah, definitely helps to um, be in a, in a lineup that is supportive and that's stoked to see a woman paddle out and and I well, found that in, in most places. That's great. What's the heaviest wave you've experienced and what kind of injuries or reef cuts? And did you ever get staph infection? Isn't that what reef cuts can yeah. cause? Definitely the heaviest waves were um, Teopo, um, Puerto Escondido was very heavy. And Surfed a wave in Indonesia, Greenbush. It was fairly heavy too. Um, when I first got to the South Pacific and I had never surfed over a reef before, I cut myself almost every session. There was just so much learning. You know, I was so used to just like putting my feet down when I fell on a sand bottom or rock bottom in, in California. It was just like a reflex. And then, you know, having to learn to try my best to stay off of the substrate below um it took me a long time and plus I wasn't used to just the 
shape of the waves, you know, they're so hollow and fast and, you know, I had this idea of perfect waves being like easier because they kind of do the same thing more often on a reef bake, but it was a whole new challenge to learn how to surf over reef. And I was, I was cut up for years, years and years. And yeah, I, I got staph infection once pretty bad and it um, stayed with me for many years. It took a long time to get rid of it actually. Wow. It would like kind of resurface every time I would, my immune system would get low it was very bothersome for several years. Was that like a fever thing or would it flare up on your skin? It flares up on your skin or that's how it manifested in me. Oh my gosh. Oh so, my gosh. Yeah, it was really, really tiring. And um, I learned how to treat the root wounds right away. You have to take it really seriously in the tropics. Even if it's a tiny cut, you have to be really good about trying to keep it dry for a couple of days and, um, you know, disinfecting it and which is so hard on a boat, you know, it's like virtually impossible, especially a lot of times it was my feet. And so you're in and out of the wet dinghy and it's just so hard, but, oh, yeah. um, eventually I, I now, well, I'm also a little more cautious with my surfing than I was in those days. I was kind of just throwing myself at anything back then. Um, <laughs> but I've, yeah, learn to choose my risk a little better. And um, now I don't get as many reef cuts as before. So that's well, That's experience. Yes. We grow, we learn, we get experience. That's yes. awesome. Sure. Well, I think a lot of people are going to be asking, what about sharks? Do you ever see them? Do you have any stories? Yeah, in the Pacific, there's tons of sharks, uh, especially in some of the remote atolls that I was visiting. And there's sharks everywhere. But most of the time I felt pretty safe. They were always like small reef sharks that I saw relatively small, sometimes about the same size as me, but none of them ever seemed interested in me. But I remember um, surfing alone one time early in the morning at an atoll reef break. And I was going down the line and could see the body of a shark like in the wave as the face was going up and I was like wow that is intense no no don't fall I was I was I was pretty wild back then I didn't let that stop me I didn't let it keep me out of the water and the ecosystem seemed so healthy there that I mean they have plenty of food and you know, I'd, t- I'd ask locals and they would say like, no, you know, they don't attack humans. So I was more fascinated by them than scared, um, at least while I was surfing. Sometimes seeing them underwater with a mask on was a little more intimidating. But but I, go- I got used to that over time of just kind of seeing them around. It always gives you a feeling of awe. But, you know, now I, I'm much more used to seeing them than I was before leaving on the trip. That's a really neat way to look at it. The ecosystem is healthy. So you really don't have as much stress because they, they have plenty to eat. There's, there's no problem. Yeah. And they're, I mean, they're much less known for being dangerous to humans than a great white or, you know, there are tiger sharks in the Pacific as well, of course, but, you know, mostly you're seeing black tips, white tips, lemon, nurse sharks, sharks that are not typically into 
testing out humans. That is so cool. Do you have a break that you can paddle out to from where you live now, or do you have to travel to it? Is it nearby? Yeah, there's a break that's pretty close to home now, and it's nice. It, you know, I'm so busy with all the projects I'm working on now, but it's really nice to have a spot where we can actually see the spot from our house and see if it's crowded or not and be able to shoot out for a quick surf to mental health break if we need to. And oh, that's um, fantastic. Yeah. That's super nice. When you're out on your boat for sometimes weeks on end with no land, do you just do yoga or are there other exercises you would do on your boat to keep you sane? Gosh, honestly, I thought that I would be able to do yoga and stretching and those types of things, but it so depends on the conditions that you're in. And I get seasick and I, up until the end of my trip, I, I mean, I still get seasick now um, when the conditions are rough. All right. So, of course. <laughs> add a little crazy to my uh, idea. But <laughs> so a lot of times, like I don't have, I, I'm not throwing up sick. I'm just you know, it makes me tired and makes me like unmotivated to do any sort of exercise or anything extra that I already have to do, basically. Just blah. So, yes, it just makes you blah. Uh, so honestly, I don't, I didn't do much out at sea to like stay fit. I wish I was able to do more, but it just really wasn't in my capacity. And there was enough to keep me busy, you know, changing sails and just taking care of myself basically along the way that, yeah, I didn't do much, too much exercise at sea, to be honest, but I was always super ready as soon as I got to the other side. I'll bet feet on land and just go for a run or you would play soccer with the kids or. Yeah. Just get in the water and swim or hopefully find some surf. <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, yeah. that's great. So I want to talk again about the book. It's called Swell, A Sailing Surfer's Voyage of Awakening. I love the name of this book. I mean, it says so much in that sentence. Tell me how, how you came about with that, the title of that book. It was pretty hard to come up with a title that really encompassed everything that the book is about. I realized that, you know, the story was so much more than a surfing and a sailing story, it's a human story. It was a story of my, my growth and my awakening and um, evolution as a person. And so um, I think Swell, for the same reasons that it was such a great name for my boat, um, because it encapsulated, you know, this idea of surfing, of contentment and searching for happiness and and then also swelling and growing and evolving um, all of those things are kind of like main themes of the book and I think it was Daniela Manini when we were working on the art for the book who said to me your journey it's an awakening I think she was very critical and actually that word like resonating with me like yeah that's that's actually a, a really good way to encapsulate what the, the journey kind of was for me. Yeah, for sure. This awakening is really, it's part of your journey. And um, I, I have a few things in the book that I wanted to touch on and read it here. And then we can talk about it. 
So for example, I hadn't always been so excited to be alone. In fact, I used to be terrified of it. Before my voyage, I would panic at the thought of spending a Saturday night by myself. I had abundant friends, boyfriends, and overlapping schedules, always making more plans than I could keep. I think I was avoiding being alone, maybe so I wouldn't have to face the parts of myself I didn't like. I was like, oh my God, I think I just had a a knife shove in my heart when I read that. Yeah, um, I think it it's true for a lot of us that we can fill our lives with so much busyness. And, you know, these days there's just endless stimulation um, and distraction from, from our thoughts and from our deeper emotions and feelings. And, and I know that for me, I, I'm an emotional person. I'm very sensitive. I, uh, I grew up with things that weren't easy all the time in my family and um, through my teens and twenties, I didn't know how to deal with all of those emotions, you know? And uh, I think being out there on swell, eventually when I was ready to sail alone, it gave me this time to like let the murky waters settle in my mind and um, kind of, see these things about myself and about my patterns of how I dealt with things, um, to be able to kind of like look at those things more clearly. And I encourage everyone now to take that time. It doesn't have to be a sailing trip around the world, but, um, even doing solo travel to the city next to you, or just taking time to be alone. I think it's so important getting to know yourself and to finding peace with yourself, um, which is such an essential part of happiness, I think. And so, yeah, that process came over many years of being on swell alone, um, you know, and time to reflect. And, and of course I'm still working on so many things, but yeah, I, I feel like having all that time alone really accelerated my awakening, my growth, um, my, I had to face a lot of those things when you're out there on the sea alone, you either that you just can't really ignore them the same way that you can um, on land when your life is full of busy days and people around you all the time. It's much easier to kind of just avoid certain things that you don't want that are easy to deny or whatever, you know. One of the things I really identified in your book had to do with you're really leaning into the insecurities and vulnerabilities that you were feeling. And to do what you do, sail solo for thousands of miles in the open ocean in search of a remote, pristine surf break, you have to have confidence in your physical ability to sail. You had to have confidence in your aptitude to learn the mechanics and physics and curveballs thrown at you along the way as well. Yeah. That is courage. Did you find confidence in your physical abilities that helped you approach your insecurities? Yes, I definitely think that proving to myself that I could captain swell and and really accomplish this dream, you know, figure out how to make it a lifestyle and and all of those things definitely helped me build confidence in myself and uh, and look hard at some of those insecurities that I had and why I had them and um, 
I think growing up in Southern California, as a woman, you are faced with a lot of pressure to look a certain way, to be a certain way. And those things stuck with me for a long time. I wasn't, I never felt beautiful enough. I never felt, you know, desirable enough, which is so silly when you think about it, when you look back, you know, but um, that like image of perfection that we're fed over and over in our society uh, is, can be very difficult for young women to, um, to find acceptance in themselves. So, you know, thankfully having surfing and having this extraordinary adventure allowed me to recalibrate my values. You know, I mean, I met these women in these remote places who were so confident and they didn't care what they looked like. And, you know, values were much more based around who you are and, and how you acted. So I was able to rethink, you know, what was important and, um, having surfing and, and this physical adventure, it was incredibly empowering to me. I could always fall back on that and be like, well, I don't care what that person thinks because I can go, you know, drop into that wave and set my sails and sail across the ocean. I think that's one thing about sports that is so important for women is that it gives us this framework to build our confidence from within versus, you know, some kind of reflection of what people think of us from the outside, I guess, you know? Exactly. Got that touches on so many different things. In your book, you say, Floating above, I notice something extraordinary. I blink and rub my eyes, but it's still there. The perfect figure of a woman sprawls across the sky in the clouds. This isn't just the kind of a cloud form where it looks like a rabbit for a moment and then quickly morphs into normal clouds again. This is different. She is perfect, exquisite from her flowing hair to her round chin to her petite ankles. Lying on her back with her arms folded behind her head, she stares peacefully up at the entire universe. Her naked body is anatomically correct as if Michelangelo himself had sculpted her. I all of a sudden understand why she is there. A clear notion emerges into the forefront of my thoughts. You are more than enough. You are divine, as beautiful and grand and limitless as I. There is nothing to worry about. Be present. Be patient. Treasure this precious time with your mother for healing and growing. And I think that was when your mom was with you, which was phenomenal. Prior to that, you had been saying, gosh, you know, this guy, he's not getting back to me. Maybe it's because my chest is small and I'm, I don't wear pretty dresses or whatever it is. Yeah. Then you see this vision, this almost manifestation of a, a sign. Yeah. It was something I never talked about. I never told anyone about really until I wrote this book. Um, it was such a magical and special moment that I will never be able to explain. But um, I think I was going so far out on a limb with this big adventure. I was out there in the middle of the Pacific when that happened. And it was about that time where I started opening up to a more uh, spiritual relationship with um, the unknown and just questioning my you know, what life is all about. And I, through the journey, have had so many 
amazing little miraculous moments like this that kind of push you in one direction or, or another and help you remember who you are and, you know, your purpose or what you're trying to do and, or what path to, to head down. And yeah, growing up in my time, I think it's a little bit better now, but I think our educations and our, as women, we, we didn't hear about the goddesses and the, powerful women you know so much of the history that we learned is about men and about um mostly white men and as I got out there I just even in in the sailing community you know it's all men and everything's based around um, a man's strength everything is geared all the you know equipment is geared towards men and a man's strength and getting out there I realized there's so many things about the way that women approach things that is actually really like good for sailing and good for succeeding at my adventure. And so I started at that point kind of like leaning into a more feminine way of looking at things. And, um, you know, this cloud goddess was really there to remind me to keep going on that path and embrace, uh, you know, the feminine side that I had kind of always shoved away because I thought that that was less valuable than my masculine traits that were enabling me to, you know, physically get out there and sail or surf or whatever. Um, I started to see the value in approaching things like uh, from a a more feminine perspective and nurturing side. Yes. Patience, intuition, all of those things really, when I tapped deeper into them were really, really important to staying safe and, and succeeding at at my voyage. Mm. Well, women on the sea in a captain's capacity is rare, right? I mean, there weren't many women out there like you. What are some of the challenges you faced as La Capitana? Did you see other sailors out there that were women? Solo? I mean, (laughs) I never, during my time when I was constantly voyaging, uh, I never met another woman sailing solo. I know there were others, but I never came across one. In the time since I've been on land, I've come to meet a few more. And certainly since I published my book, there's a lot of women who've reached out to me who are either aspiring to be one or on their way to being one or already out there doing their version of, of uh, you know, captaining and adventuring. So it's really exciting to see that um, kind of pushing the envelope is always going to like open that space for more, more women behind me. And, um, yeah, it it was from the start, it was never, it was not easy. I wasn't taken seriously, even back in Santa Barbara during the time we were rebuilding the boat and everything, you know, people kind of, a lot of men mostly, you know, blew me off and thought I would never leave and thought I wouldn't, I'd come back with, you know, in a short period of time and, or, you know, get swallowed by a storm or something. Um, there was a lot of, yeah, doubts cast on me. I think also, you know, in terms of seeking support, you know, this was something that no woman was really doing or had ever done. And so I was just like, I was, I didn't fall into any real category. And, um, thankfully Patagonia was, you know, always kind of looks for people like that, but in general, seeking other types of support was not that easy for me throughout the trip. And then, 
you know, being a woman alone in anywhere in the world can be challenging and scary. And I had to kind of conform to a lot of things that weren't, you know, I naturally probably wouldn't have done if I had felt really safe and secure. Like I always, you know, dressed like a tomboy and, you know, wore baggy clothes. So I didn't show my figure or draw more attention to myself than I normally would. And um, I, I mean, just you felt that vulnerability often, even, you know, just my natural strength. There were certain things that I just couldn't do sometimes that I had to go and look for help and find somebody, you know, stronger than me. Most of the time I could figure out a way. Uh, but there was, you know, there was times where um, I needed somebody bigger and stronger than me to do different things and resourcefulness. Yeah. I think there was, there was always also like, I found so often that some men were just challenged by my presence. You know, they're always trying to find a hole in my, uh, you know, find a weakness. Um, I don't know, maybe it made them feel less than because I could do what they were doing. You know, that, that was always a challenge to, you know, find men who are just like supportive versus, trying to, um, you know, poke holes in, in what I was doing. So there's some intimidation on their side. I mean, I would assume that it has something to do with that. Yeah. I think it was really exciting for other women. And a lot of the places I went, um, you know, a lot of times the women, when they found out that I was alone, they were just so excited and proud and, it just, you could see it just like opening a new place in their minds where there wasn't a space before. And, and that always made me feel uplifted and um, reminded me that, you know, all the hard work uh, is really, that I was doing something really positive for other women too. That's fantastic. You know who Brene Brown is. Uh, she's done a ton of research on vulnerability and she's found that like the core of shame and fear and the struggle for self-worthiness is, is in vulnerability, but it's also the birthplace of joy, creativity, belonging, and love. Oh, wow. I need to read more of her work. It's like, you can't have one without the other. You can't understand joy and creativity and belonging if you don't know shame and fear and the struggle for self-worthiness. So it's this push me, pull you. And in the book, this you embody this here. Everyone sees me as this confident sailor girl, but it's clear that no matter how much praise I receive for captaining swell, no matter how far I sail or how many magazine features my photos, none of it adds up to me loving myself. Navigating to self-love is not as straightforward as plugging a waypoint into my GPS. I don't really know where I'm going, nor how do I proceed. I just know I have to get there. I just, I mean, that, that's exactly what she's talking about. Yeah, I, I think, well, I, I spent a lot of time feeling vulnerable out there, whether it was vulnerability to storms and weather and elements or vulnerability to, you know, other people or almost running out of money or, you know, all of these um, things that make you feel scared or uncertain about your future and, I think going through those times, you know, no one wants to feel vulnerable, but 
it really is what connects us to each other. For me, it's like when you haven't been like squashed down to nothingness and felt that feeling of just like desperateness, you have a really hard time developing compassion for other people in those situations. And, you know, having those times where I just didn't know if I was going to make it through, it really opened my heart. It opened me up to this connection with others and this compassion, this connection through sufferings, this, this real human experience that most people on earth go through, um, the privileged and the 1%. And we're able to shelter ourselves, you know, a little bit more from that. But I think it was so critical to have those experiences to be able to not only just like appreciate joy and appreciate simple moments of being comfortable and safe and all of that, but also to developing that desire to want everyone to feel happy and safe and, and want to, you know, give back and help make the world better for, for everyone else. I think that was really crucial to putting me on a, a trajectory where that's a priority for me, you know? No, for sure. I love the part about your mom joining you to cross the Pacific 3,300 miles. Yeah, she joined me in Galapagos and we sailed to the Marquesas. It's the longest stretch of open ocean where there's no other islands or places to stop. And yeah, poor mom got suckered into that one. She was such a champ. I love it. You talk about your relationship with her. And I, I wonder how uncommon it is, really. Here's a quote from the book. She found solace in tranquility. I found it in adrenaline and action. She could never quite understand why I filled my plate so full. I judged hers as too empty. I always had her unconditional love and blessings to pursue whatever made me happy, but she didn't always agree that wild abandon was the best approach to my goals. After a nonstop streak of back-to-back evenings out with friends or perpetual surf adventures, I would end up sick, exhausted, hysterical, or sometimes all three. She'd say she told me so, and I'd be annoyed because she was always right. That totally was like me and my mom. (laughs) Yeah. She would say, you know, God, surfing, Allie, that's, you know, can't you do a girl sport? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, ever since that trip that we took together, we've we've grown closer in so many ways and I've become more and more like her in so many ways. It's pretty funny that, you know, we have a closer relationship now than, than ever. The gift that came out of that was me getting to know my mom as a person versus my mom. You know, we grow up with all these judgments around our parents and we don't really understand why they are the way they are until we become adults and, and learn their stories and so it was just so critical to me uh, being able to let go of certain things about my past that were holding me back emotionally. And I'm so lucky that she went out on a, a limb like that and to go with me and to take that crazy risk to, to cross the ocean with me the first time I'd ever done something like that. And so, yeah. Yeah, that was amazing. You know, it was no pleasure cruise either. 
Definitely no. not. So when the listeners read your book, they're going to be like, oh my God. Yeah. She, yeah, poor thing. There definitely were times she was wishing to be airlifted out. Talking about your relationships and, you know, the men you meet along the way. I mean, it's a male dominated world that you're in and all that. And the part where you, you think you, you met your soulmate, you thought this is perfect. He, you know, he surfs, he does this, he does that. We can do it together. In, in your book, you say, my blazing heart incinerates all logic. I'm flat out sprinting into a future together, voyaging, surfing, and exploring the world. It's going to be all the freedom and adventure plus love. What could be better? I think it's really hard for women to find a, a guy that can keep up with you, right? I mean, women who it's, are, it's have this, hard. you know, this drive and this goal setting mentality and this unending need to fulfill what we are setting our sights on, that can be hard on, on to find that match. It's really hard. I have several really close friends who embody all those same values or characteristics. And, um, you know, we've all had our share of disappointments and just learning process through trying to find a relationship that works for, for women like us. And it's tough when you are so capable and so um, dynamic and that can be intimidating for a lot of men. You, it takes finding a man who's really confident in themselves and wants to have a partner that can rise to their, you know, to challenges and engage and be thoughtful and want to have their own direction in life, I guess, you know, um, I think I had to go through all of the, the failures and like, I, I had these ideas of changing people or, um, that they would come around or see the good in being with a woman like myself. But, you know, I learned over and over that there's only so much you can do to, um, to lead a horse to the water, you know? Well, men are the rescuers. Yeah. It challenges the whole setup that we're engraved in from the time we, you know, read books as a child of Prince Charming saving us or whatever. So luckily, a lot of those narratives are changing and um, men are being valued for things other than, you know, toxic masculine traits, I guess. So and I'm very, very lucky to have found a man who embodies just wanting to support and lift up women. And so took me a long time, but I definitely finally found an awesome, awesome human to share my journey with. Oh, that's so neat. Uh, he's the one that you got the property with. Yes. So you probably remember in the end of the book when I, I lost Tropicat on the little islet. So he was the guy who helped me bring Tropicat to the island that day. At the time when I wrote the book, uh, you know, we were kind of just still starting to date. So I didn't know where it was all going to lead. And I didn't want to make the end of the book about, you know, this fairy tale ending of when I didn't really know what to expect. But, um, but yeah, uh, I met Tahui that day. And over the next couple of years, he surprised me in so many ways. And we, we grew up so differently. He's from a tiny island. He's a native Tahitian. 
we have such different upbringings, but so much of our values overlap and we really complete each other in a way that's really nice. And he has been so supportive. I mean, without him, the end of the book project, I just, I don't know if I would have been able to do it all. He really believed in, in what I was doing and was right there to support me through the end of, of the time where I, I don't know, literally don't know if I would have finished it without his support. Oh, that's so awesome. that's great. Yeah. Liz thought she would have to do everything by herself, but realized how connected we all are with everyone and every living thing on the planet. When in need, she gets help from strangers who know how to fix something on the boat, or the offer of fresh water from a family well, or someone permits her to climb their coconut tree to gather stores for her pantry. We're all in this together. Liz embraces the environmental stewardship that this journey has presented her, and now that's her life's work. And so you're working with a few nonprofit organizations, one, one of which you started, right? Yes. Well, Changing Tides Foundation is an organization that I helped start with five other water women. That kind of was born out of this just like synergy of sisterhood through surfing and wanting to protect Mother Earth and do something on a bigger scale to give back and you know, the mission is to empower women to protect the planet. And we have all kinds of cool online resources and challenges and, um, you know, educative programs. And then also do like uh, more hands-on mentorship um, in different places around the world and try to provide and embody, you know, the spirit of sisterhood and, you know, women lifting each other up and you know, just sharing and celebrating on this magical journey of life together. I think it's just so enriched when women support each other and can rely on each other. You know, relationships sometimes fade, but these bonds that I've found between a lot of the really close women in my life are just, they are always there for me when, you know, life gets hard and, and it does. So, you know, having those is really is really important. And so we hope to like, you know, create a network uh, to be able to share that feeling to more and more women. And um, the headquarters is in Encinitas. And, but I am lucky that the world, the technology today makes it possible for me to be involved from here. And is it a .org? What's the site? It's a nonprofit. It's um, a 501c3 in California and it's changingtidesfoundation.org. We're in the middle of running a plant-based March challenge, which is all about educating around plant-based eating. And, um, and so that's been super fun and inspiring, just getting the knowledge out there around food and our food systems and climate change and how we can make better choices and do our best on an individual level. So. I read a little bit about that, your plant-based diets and how, how much better it is for the environment. You don't even think about that. And then you start looking into the to the weeds of it. And it's really incredible. It's incredible. It's it's become really like so such a big passion for me because, you know, as I was out there trying to live a more examined life and, you know, seeing all these problems in our world that I wanted to change, you know, you can get really overwhelmed and depressed and feel like you can't have an impact. 
And, you know, little by little, I tried to start changing my own personal habits and doing better. And what I realized is that our food choices can have such an enormous impact on everything from our health to the deforestation of the Amazon to environmental racism and our oceans, you know, industrial fishing is the biggest threat to ocean life in our ecosystems uh, in the world today, you know, climate change is increased by the impacts of removing so many fish and wildlife from the ocean. So it was so empowering to find this one thing that I could do. And of course, eating sustainably looks differently everywhere you live and, and you have to listen to your body and there's no one way to do it. And it doesn't have to be extreme, you know, I, but I realized that food choices can have this really widespread positive impact if we choose to, you know, get in and, and uh, learn about what we're putting in our mouth. So um, as a kind of like a revolutionary in my own way, I think this has been one of my ways to fight for a better world. That's great. Well, and God, look at you, you have like 2% body fat, and you're strong as an ox. <laughs> I, my body loves it. So um, I've, I honestly, my health transformed when I decided finally to eat plant-based, yeah, I felt 10 years younger within three months and there was definitely no turning back for me. Oh my God. Okay. So yeah. So anyway, that's become a huge passion of mine and it's, it's exciting to be able to kind of share it on a bigger scale through, through Changing Tides Foundation. And, you know, it's about progress over perfection. It's about education and getting to know the facts and just encouraging people to learn more about their food and where it comes from. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And then the other one has to do with animal rescue. Yeah. So ever since I kind of settled here in this community in French Polynesia, um, you know, it's the first time I've grown roots anywhere really in more than a decade. And my first idea was addressing simple problems in the community, the, the glaring problems in the community here. And I had a bunch of surfer friends that all kind of felt the same way about certain issues here. And so we got together and formed a nonprofit called Atia Makairea, which basically means like stand up for your island. So we have several projects going on. The, um, the animal welfare, there's a really big problem of overpopulation of dogs here on the island. People don't have access to um, affordable sterilization. So it's a big challenge. There's just a lot of problems because of the overpopulation of dogs. Not only is there an enormous suffering of animals, but also the human problems that come with just having too many dogs. People get bitten. There's problems between neighbors all the time. So we really launched off on a big campaign to help reduce the dog population. We have a mass sterilization event planned with the support of the Bridget Bardot Foundation. And I did start doing overseas adoptions. It's not really a solution to the problem, but for the 10 to 15 animals that we've sent overseas, you know, they have amazing lives now. And so that's felt really good. And it also was able to bring more attention to the issue and get more people inspired to make change. And it's been a really interesting transition for me because, you know, as a solo sailor, I was always out there kind of like dealing with things on my own. And I had my own little world with my own little problems and I didn't really dive into community issues. And now I'm 
here as a foreigner, you know, with these big ideas. And uh, I have to really, you know, be good about listening and being humble uh, about what my place is here. And it's just the idea of working together as a community and connecting with people, you know, to find solutions to issues that are difficult in your place where you live. It's been a cool experience and um, very new challenge for me. We're also doing a big lagoon protection project right now where we are um, working towards developing marine protected areas and fishing regulations because right now there are apps, there are really none and fisheries are really, really struggling right now. And the people, you know, even the fishermen themselves are, you know, looking for a way to do something about it. So I feel lucky to have this like more global vision and a lot of connections and resources to be able to kind of empower or bring my perspective and, and resources to helping them shape whatever that's going to look like. So it's been a lot of challenges, but a lot of fun learning. I'm always up for a new challenge when it inspires me. Well, what a great way to channel your energy from that decade of, I mean, just, you guys got it. Everyone's got to read this book. It's amazing. <laughs> Swell. A Sailing Surfer's Voyage of Awakening. Is, exactly. anyone, is there a movie coming? <laughs> Has anyone approached um, you? There was a, a couple. Yeah, there was a couple bites at the beginning. Uh, I wasn't quite ready at the time. And for the moment, there's nothing in the works, but you never know. Make a good Netflix series someday. I think it would be amazing. Maybe you could play <laughs> yourself because who are they going to get to, you know? <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm terrible at acting. I don't think I would be any good. <laughs> who would you have as your, who would you pick? Oh gosh, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I don't even know what, I don't even know who any movie stars are because I live basically on a floating water cave for a decade. I love it. Yeah. Well, what are you thinking about the future? You know, I would like to do more sailing eventually. I think this time during COVID has been a really good time to, to stop and slow down. Um, I love having a home base now and being invested in this community here, but I also know that, that there will be a time where I want to go sail off again and see other places, maybe in a more balanced way where I could do part of the year on the ocean and part of the year back here. Um, at this point, I'm just having such a fun time, like, having this adventure on land, trying to learn how to grow my own food and, you know, all these things about being in one place for an extended period of time that I just never really in my adult life experienced seeing the trees go through the changes of the seasons. And so all those little things right now are just filling me up and I'd like to definitely do more uh, hands-on empowering of women, you know, more like sailing clinics or things like that and definitely more mentorship work with changing tides foundation. I'd even like to do something like that for young women here on the Island, but yeah, just kind of going through it step-by-step step at this point and trying to just keep tuning into what I need and what my heart wants. And as I've learned over the years, you know, sometimes what we think 
we should do for financial stability or for clout or for our career or CV or whatever, you know, sometimes we feel pushed to do those things. But I over and over again have learned that when we really tap into the heart space and go towards the things that really feel right and what we really feel like we need to do for our soul and our soul purpose, that those things really end up bringing us abundance in ways that, you know, you, you don't otherwise experience. So trying to practice what I preach and keep that in the forefront of my mind is definitely a big part of my plan, (laughs) my (laughs) non-plan. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of touching a little bit more on that than um, the recommendations on how we women can take hold of our skills and go forward without fear, just leading with the heart. Yeah, I think in in a lot of ways, it's that simple. In a lot of ways, it's it's not. Uh, you know, I think a lot of us have seen in this last year how, you know, privilege is really leaned away from black and brown people in our country. And I think it's a time where we all, especially we white women really need to be working on making sure that that privilege is spread evenly toward all women. And so that's, you know, it's been a big awakening for me in the last year of, you know, I know I'm doing, trying to do my best to empower women, but I think it's really important that we as women in general work to dismantle white supremacy and dismantle um, the systems that are holding black and brown women down more than we're, you know, more than the oppression that, that we face. So, yeah, I think um, that's been added to my radar as in a really, really important thing that we need to work on as a global community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Exactly. Yeah, if we work together as a group. You know, yeah, I feel like, I feel hopeful because it feels like the, the wound has been exposed and all this pus is coming out right now. And hopefully we'll be able to do some deeper healing as a country, as a world, and work towards, you know, equity and inclusion, like you're saying, in a real sense where it's not just numbers on paper or uh, a workshop at your corporation, uh, you know. Right. I've interviewed a few diverse athletes. Something that's really important is to have role models so that others can see themselves doing that sport. Yes, 100%. So getting your community out sailing will help the younger generation. Representation. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's so important. I, I didn't have that. I didn't have the vision of a, a woman sailing and to be able to provide that to others. But hopefully, you know, more and more it will be women of color and it, whether it's in surfing or, or sailing or whatever, you know, um, it's so important that there's a diverse array of people doing those things so that young women can see themselves in their future doing those things too. Right. Sports bring out so much of that confidence, you know, no matter what color or race or gender really that you are. But in women, I think it's just so important because of, yes, the endorphins and, but then just the strength and the ability to say, hey, you know, 
if I can compete with you in, in a sport, then all of a sudden, you know what? I, I'm strong. I feel good. And so these underprivileged, these marginalized groups might have more power in their voice and more confidence to keep going in, into the sport. I agree a, a thousand percent. Sports have such a power to help us find our voice, help us find our confidence, like you said. And that can be the difference between us having the courage to speak up for ourselves or pursue the thing we want to pursue or just stand up to some jerk that you're confronted with, whether it's your boss or your partner or, you know, whoever. Um, I think it's so, so important to developing that confidence and strength in our strength. Don't you know it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Keep living your dream, girl. Thank you so much. You too. Keep living that best life. (laughs) Liz Clark spent over a decade searching for surf and intense solo sailing. She redirected her energy into community, learning and encouraging the benefits of plant-based diets and living sustainably. The stories she shares in her book, entitled Swell, A Sailing Surfer's Voyage of Awakening, bring us along on her journey of adventure, self-discovery, and environmental stewardship. Liz has found that we are stronger together, and that is empowering. You can find Liz on Instagram at Captain Liz Clark. Also, visit EmpoweringWomenThroughSports.com to see incredible images and links to videos of her journey. Music for this podcast is created and produced by Gary Ferguson. Creative consultants, Tony Ferguson and Quinn Ferguson. You can find a library of episodes and other information on the web at empoweringwomenthroughsports.com. We're on Instagram, too, at EWTSpod. Or find us on your favorite listening platform, like Apple Podcast or Spotify. If you hear an inspiring episode, share it with your friends, and let's grow our community of empowering women through sports. Thanks for listening. <laughs>